Hi, I'm Nigel the Shanghai Psychic. I can tune into your loved ones in the spirit world, but I can also tune into you, tell you about your path and the choices that you need to make and need to know. I'm currently giving 30% discount on all Tell Craig Your Story listeners. Just use the code Tell Craig Your Story for 30% off your first psychic reading with me online at Nigel the Shanghai Psychic. Craig here. Welcome to another edition of the podcast, Tell Craig Your Story. Today we'll be speaking to Dr. Andrew Field. Now, Dr. Field was born in Massachusetts, USA, currently residing in Kunshan in China. Now, Dr. Field is a professor, an historian, and is the author of his new book, Rocking China, Music Scenes in Beijing, Shanghai and Beyond. And he's also produced several independent documentary films, Indie Rock in the PRC and A Century of Jazz in Shanghai. Now, Dr. Field also does Shanghai historical walking tours, which are also available. And we take a deep dive into his new book, Rocking China. But before we go, please go to our website where we're at Podbean. Tell Craig Your Story at podbean.com. We have a link tree which tells you where Tell Craig Your Story podcast is streaming. We're on all the major streaming services. We have a YouTube channel there. Make sure you're subscribing to get all the latest updates. And make sure you're giving us a like as well. We have VK for our Russian listeners and WeChat for our Chinese listeners. At Tell Craig Your Story. All right, here we go. This is my chat with Dr. Andrew Field on Tell Craig Your Story podcast. Hi, Andrew. How are you going today? I'm just fine. Thanks. Great to have you on. Firstly, new books just come out recently. Congratulations. You've been doing some talks recently. So tell us about how it's all been going with the promotion of the book. Yeah, it's been going pretty well. I had a talk up in Beijing in late May um, with a small gathering of, but very appreciative gathering of luminaries yes. in, uh, in music that went well and i've had a few podcasts here as well here in shanghai as well as a couple of book talks in shanghai and suzhou i think it's it has an appreciative audience i think that uh, rock music in china is a topic that's that is of interest i think actually the biggest audience for my book is uh, the chinese audience because indie rock has become very 
popular, much mm. more popular in uh, recent years. Yes. And there's a lot more knowledge about uh, the indie rock scene amongst young Chinese people. Problem is my book doesn't yet have a Chinese version. Right. I, I hope to have one soon. Right. Yeah. And like you said, uh, predominantly Chinese people, but yeah. are you still getting the expats that are coming as well? Oh, yeah. There's always, uh, yeah, um, foreigners in, in the crowd as well of uh, these talks. And it does appeal to, I think, that, you know, people who have been living in China, who've come here from abroad, are also interested in this scene, but not always very knowledgeable about it. When I started filming and documenting the scene back in 2007, it was still very much a word of mouth kind mm. of scene. I mean, there was a little bit of attention in the media, but unless you went to these clubs and hung out there, it was kind of hard to see what was going on because, yeah. you know, rock music has never quite had the attention in China that it has in the Western world, which I suppose I include Australia in the Western world. Yes. Although, I, you know, Australia is still Southwest. also very much, a, <laughs> yeah, it's the global south, it's the Asia Pacific, Yes, it occupies a very interesting place in the world. Yes. But, you know, it, I, I think uh, it was never part of sort of mainstream culture in China. It's a little bit more these days, but I think, you know, music just has has really exploded in China because of the social media revolution. Yes. There's just... Young people in China have much, much more exposure and ability to uh, to learn about um, all kinds of music than they did even, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. I mean, TikTok's just exploded here in China. And yeah, uh, yeah Billy Billy having easier access to create music online as well. It's a lot easier now instead of having to go into a recording studio and do it the old school style, right? Yeah, I mean, when I when I started documenting the scene back in 2007, you you had to go to a place, go to a club, and buy the CDs, yes. the bands you liked, right? <laughs> yes. And now they're available digitally online for anybody who wants to look for them, mm. and also on um, platforms like QQ, which is kind of the Chinese equivalent of Spotify. Yes. So yeah, it's just much easier for young people to gain access to popular music and unpopular music yes. <laughs> today. So, so that's cool really changed the landscape. Yeah. I mean, uh, less popular, let's yeah. just say, less mainstream music. And I think that tastes have become a lot more eclectic because of that. And I see that in the in the young people that I know, like my students. Yes. Um, every year it just seems they know a little bit more about about music than they did, than the previous class did. So... It's interesting. It's just, I'm always surprised by how much people know about pop and rock music. Although maybe uh, the young people of today don't know so much about the music that I was steeped in as a kid. <laughs> right. Growing up in the 1970s, the 1980s. I mean, I feel like, but you know, that when I think about it, um, a kid who's 20 today, if I'm talking to them about music in the 70s and 80s, that would have been like somebody talking to me about music from the 20s and 30s. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when I was growing up in the 70s. And I don't know if the math... Yeah, I think that the math works out there. So it, it would be kind of weird. It would be like... I, I do wonder... I don't know how, how long that kind of music will persist in the popular sphere. 
It's an interesting question, like how does, how does music persist? Why does some early music come back to haunt us and others just kind of disappears yeah, forever? <laughs> yeah, I love all my dad's music. Like I grew up with his, all these records and whatnot, but he never grew up on his dad's music. Yeah. It's just funny how times have changed now. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wonder, my, I'm trying to think about what kind of music my grandparents would have listened to. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I remember them watching Lawrence Welk on television. So <laughs> right. you know, that kind of gives you a sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, every generation has its own music. Mm. Um, but I think I, f I found like with the Chinese music scene, they would kind of uh, capture bits of musical trends from earlier eras like uh, when I was documenting the scene in the 2000s, um, Chinese bands seemed to be inter interested in like industrial rock from the 1980s. Mm. So, and even today you see a lot of like young Chinese people with Joy Division t-shirts. Now, yes. I don't know if they know Joy Division, the band, if they're familiar with that band, but they, but they bear the t-shirt. Yes. Um, so it's become an important icon. Um, and and some of the bands did kind of sound like early, like Joy Division or Bauhaus, uh, hmm. that kind of sound, like the band Retros, which was a big band in the Beijing indie scene. So they kind of, uh, I don't know, pilfer bits of uh, music from earlier eras and bring it into their, into their musical fold. It's an interesting phenomenon. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the book is available everywhere online? It's available online. I know it's available on Amazon. You mm -hmm. can download the Kindle version. You can get a hard copy. I'm sure it's available in the Australian market as well, in the Australian book market. Wow. It's Earnshaw Books. So if you're interested in the book, Rocking China is the name of the book. And just look up uh, Earnshaw Books and you'll find it. If it's not available in your local bookstore, then please uh, ask them to order copies. How did you get involved with Earnshaw? I've known Graham Earnshaw for many, many years. I've known him actually since the 1990s. Right. He was part of the early jazz scene. Hmm. It's probably how I met him originally. Like he used to play at the House of Blues and Jazz when it was just forming right. in the 90s. And I was here doing my dissertation on the jazz age of China, which was, you know, of course, the 1930s, that era. And so I started getting interested in this revival of jazz in Shanghai. And I mm. started going to House of Blues and Jazz. And then uh, quite quickly after that, another club formed called the Cotton Club mm. that had a jazz and blues kind of theme to it. And then later on, there was the Jay-Z Club. Um, but that's how I got to know Graham, and I've known him ever since. And uh, you know, we've worked together on various projects. We've uh, republished some old books that uh, had been out of print for many decades, books about Shanghai. There's a, a book called Shanghai 1935 that I discovered in the New York Public Library when I was doing my research. It was written by a woman named Ruth Day, mm. and she came here. She was an American who came here in 1935, her, her mother was living here and her stepfather was, um, had been, I think, commissioned by the U.S. government to come out and work with Chiang Kai-shek and, yeah, right. and the nationalist government. 
but she so she got access to all the uh, elite society of Shanghai and she writes about it in this memoir which in lavish detail like what their homes were like what the people were like all the dinner parties that she yeah, went to right. all the nightclubs and cabarets that wow. she, it's an amazing book uh, so Graham and I decided to republish it mm. and I did some research into her personal history in the introduction to the book and then we also republished a a memoir by a jazz musician, another American who was here in the 1920s and 30s named Whitey Smith. He wrote this memoir called I Didn't Make a Million. Right. So, you know, we all have this idea that we're going to come to China and make our millions and then go home rich. <laughs> right. Of course, that almost never happens. <laughs> but or it happens to like in, in the oddest circumstances, like a guy comes here, you know, to uh, work as a bartender and he ends up uh, running a whole chain of restaurants that become very successful and he becomes a multimillionaire. Yes. Now that happens. Yes. But it's pretty rare. Yes. So anyway, Whitey Smith didn't didn't make a lot of money, but he had some great stories being a jazz musician in Shanghai in the 20s and 30s and again hobnobbed with all the high society of China and of the world at that time in the fancy hotels of Shanghai. And what an era. Yeah, it was an amazing era. I, I've spent 20, 20 or more years of my life researching yeah. and writing about that era. It's very interesting you say that because I went to Heyday last night and it says that it's nearly 100 years old. Like I couldn't believe that it may not be like a jazz bar, but it's been there for 100 years. I was like... Maybe oh. the building has. The building I, there. I don't think... Heyday is pretty fairly new. Club, right. But... Uh, it was probably talked about the building that it's in. Mm. I mean, that, and that's the interesting thing, I think, about Shanghai is that uh, there are so many old buildings that are still preserved from the 1920s and 30s. Mm. And so if you run a restaurant or a cafe or a club in this old building, it feels like it has this heritage. Yeah. You know, connects it to an earlier age in the history of the city, which is true of a lot of, you know, historical cities, of course. But... Um, Shanghai is quite unique and special in the history of China because it was the first and only really modern city in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, so if you go to Beijing, of course, a lot of Beijing neighborhoods go back many centuries. Right. Um, the old Hutong neighborhoods. Yes. Uh, but much of Beijing and much of other cities in China has been knocked down to make way for modernity. Right. But in Shanghai, modernity was built a century ago. Right. So it still bears that heritage. And so people come from all over China and the world to Shanghai to experience that that modernity, the earlier phase of modernity. And fortunately, Shanghai hasn't knocked down all those old buildings. Um, if it does, it would be a tragedy for the city, I think. Mm. I mean, it, already they've destroyed a lot of old neighborhoods and, and buildings, but... Um, I think they've preserved some of the best of them. Right. Uh, so that's a good thing. Was the Pearl another one? The Pearl Theater? Yeah, the Pearl Theater, which is a uh, kind of a cabaret yeah. theater nightclub, is uh, in the Hongkou district of uh, Shanghai. That used to be, in the 1930s, that was a Japanese Buddhist temple Unbelievable. Yeah. And so that goes way back. Wow. And you can still see some of the Japanese emblems, like the chrysanthemum on yeah. the uh, side of the building. 
Um, so all these buildings have a kind of a unique heritage and a, a unique story to tell mm. about the history of the city. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I want to get back to your, your book, Rocking China. You said that you started doing blogs and doing live interviews around 2007. Yep. So when was the first idea to actually start the book? Yeah, the book came later. It was it was one of these projects where it started out kind of. I wanted to document the scene. I, mm. I was getting into filmmaking at that time, and this seemed like a really exciting scene to document. And and uh, it was relatively easy to go into the clubs and film, film the bands on stage, and also um, you know arrange interviews with them. They were very open to talking about what they were doing. Um, so I I captured a, a lot of the footage in 2007. And then uh, with a friend in Shanghai, a guy named Judd, Judd Wilmont, we, mm. uh, we, uh, he's a filmmaker and we decided to um, you know, make this film together. Uh, but it took us a long time. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. uh, the post-production process, if it's just two guys working out of a little studio, <laughs> yes. um, it, it takes a long time. And, and, it, and it went through many versions. Uh, but it came together and we've screened it. You know, it's gotten into various film festivals over mm. the years. We've screened it in various events and and we're still screening it. And and now I think it's got a second life with uh, a Chinese audience. Right. So that kind of came first. And then several years later, I said to myself, well, I've got all this material that I've collected. I've got uh, all this visual material, all the videos and the interviews I have, which I had transcribed. And I also had all these blogs, like uh, journal entries that I had written during the making of the film. And mm. um, I had made a lot of subsequent visits over the years to clubs, kept up with the musicians. So I said to myself, well, it wouldn't be too much effort to pull this all into a book. Of course, you know, whenever I start these projects, um, I think that, oh, it'll be quick and get it done. <laughs> but of course, it ends up taking 10 times longer than, than I calculated. Yes. So it, it did take several years to put the book together, to do some follow-up interviews with the important mm. people in the book and uh, kind of keep up with the scene. So the book, um, unlike the film, which is like a snapshot of the year 2007, which I call a golden year in the in the history of rock music in China. Explain that. What, what do we mean by the golden year? Well, I mean, a golden period. Uh, right. I think that that was when the Beijing rock scene was at its strongest, right. its finest, and its freest. And uh, the evidence for that is that there were several rock clubs that were active in the city at that time. There was the Mao Live House, mm. Dos Colegas, Yugong Yushan, and of course, D22. And there were some others as well, but those to me were the four most important clubs. And there were rock festivals in Beijing that were just amazing, incredible, like the Beijing Pop Festival, right. where they, we saw Public Enemy. Wow. And we saw Nine Inch Nails performing in Come Chaoyang on. Park in Beijing, which is kind of unimaginable. How do they get a permit? <laughs> Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> It's Must amazing, it. like um, <laughs> really is amazing to think that those kind of bands were performing, you know, in a in a public park in Beijing. Mm. But that's how kind of open the scene was. And then, for various reasons that I document in the book, um, the Beijing scene 
changed over the next few years. So that kind of golden period lasted for a few more years. And then um, Beijing kind of lost its mantle as the, the center of rock in China. What, why do you think that? Well, I think there were a number of reasons. Part of it was government intervention. It mm. just got harder to, to hold. Certainly, like rock festivals got pushed out to the margins of the city and eventually just stopped entirely. Just in, not important in or was just not a priority for the government? It's hard to say because I don't, it's really hard. The government in China tends to be a little bit opaque about mm. its yes. policies. Yes. So it's hard to say exactly what forces were at work there, but there were also a lot of crackdowns on uh, drugs, which was always a part of the scene. Mm. Um, and I think that ended up closing down a few clubs. Gotcha. Um, but also, real estate prices and just the gentrification of the city right. it got harder to run a rock music club because you know those clubs don't make a lot of money yes and so the, the clubs themselves got pushed out to the margins of the city just because the real estate prices in the middle of the city were were rising so all those factors but at the same time other cities in china were were also creating their own local rock scenes and running rock clubs and rock festivals. So the whole scene, the whole rock scene in China got much more dispersed and localized over mm. time. So I think that was all this. So there were push and pull factors, right? Like for, and also for the rock musicians themselves, um, Beijing just got too expensive to live in. Mm. You know, a lot of them had already been living in the outskirts of the city, right. um, making it hard for them to, go into the city to perform. Um, but it just, as real estate prices rose, it just made, I think, more sense for bands to stay in their own hometowns. Yes. Especially since they could be local heroes in yes. their hometowns. And there were rock scenes developing in those cities, in other cities in China. So the rock music scene has really changed. It's become much more dispersed, localized, more evenly distributed around the country. So that's why I think that uh, the late 2000s was kind of a golden period for the Beijing rock scene. Yes. Uh, maybe the China's rock scenes are experiencing uh, a renaissance um, with other cities rising, but yeah. but Beijing is definitely no longer the, the, the rock and roll city that it once was. What is it now, do you think? I don't think there is one city um, I think it's kind of shared. The burden shared. of rock and roll is shared by many cities mm -hmm. around China yeah. and the scenes have become more localized. And, you know, and, and that also enriches the music because then local rock musicians can bring local culture and local languages yes. into the rock scene or into other music scenes. Um, so I think this is happening with all kinds of music scenes in China. It's very interesting. What, what I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and it's interesting, when I was in Brazil, there was a lot of local bands singing in Portuguese. Yeah. In your research, has there been any sort of backlash from the Chinese people that follow rock music that you see Chinese bands singing English? 
I'm not sure about backlash. I mean, I think chi Chinese bands have to make a choice. Do they want to sing songs in English or mm. in Chinese? What kind of audience are they catering to? Do they want a global audience for their music? In which case, it makes more sense to sing in English because yeah. English is kind of the global language yes. of popular music. Bands and uh, musicians all over the world um, may have to make that choice. Do they sing in their own native languages or do they sing in English? Um, and that's no less true for Chinese musicians. Um, and then the other choice that they have is do they sing in Mandarin Chinese, which is the Chinese national language, or do they sing songs in their own local dialect? Mm. So there are bands that are well known, like a band called Top Floor Circus, Ding Lo Da Ma Si Tuan, in Shanghai is known for singing in the Shanghai dialect. Wow. So they're catering to this local yeah. kind of audience, but at the expense of maybe losing audiences elsewhere in China. Right. Um, and I think that happens with other bands from other regions that have their own local dialects. They, they have to make that choice. And sometimes they do both. Mm. You know, and I think a lot of bands um, have some songs in English, some songs in Chinese, um, and maybe even some songs in their own local dialect if they have one. Uh, so it's not mutually exclusive. They can decide what what they want to, uh, what language they want to use to sing their songs. That's very interesting. Now, I went to one of DJ Bo's talks on music. Uh, Metallica is one of my favorite bands, and the topic was their new album. Anyway, he was talking about this new book that was going to come out, and he was saying that original rock, rock and roll originated out of china and he said like i'll give you an answer but you got to read the book to find out so yeah. can we get a scoop or do we have to still read the book well dj bo brian he's a very interesting uh guy who's uh, who's been very supportive of my uh, of of this book and other projects that i've that i've been involved in um, and he also came up with the playlist for this, for, mm. for my book, um, as well as helping to fine edit it. Uh, the guy is a virtual encyclopedia of music. <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't know anybody who knows as much about so many different genres and styles and kinds of music and music from all over the world. Um, and he's very active in the music scene here in Shanghai and elsewhere in China, goes DJs. So yeah, he has this very interesting theory about the origins of rock and roll, which I will let him, you know, share with you. Yes. I, I think it's a little bit, um, I think he, he adopts a fair, fairly kind of narrow perspective. <laughs> but, but there, you know, I, I, I think what's interesting about his theory is that it shows that rock has global roots. Mm. Um, and it's certainly rooted in the, um, you know, I think you can trace its origins back to World War II right. for sure. I think that a lot of scholars of music, particularly in the United States, tend to be a little bit myopic and they tend to focus on U.S. music. And this happens in rock. It happens in jazz. It happens in other in other styles of popular music where they trace the history and it's it's all American. Yes. Um, but they kind of neglect the uh, the rest of the world in telling these stories. Um, so there was a huge jazz scene in Paris. There was also a jazz scene in Shanghai and in Tokyo and 
going back to the 20s and 30s. Right. Which are, and in other parts of the world, which contributed to the history of jazz. But that's often neglected by jazz historians who tend to look at the great jazz players all coming from the United States. Right. And I think, you know, you, you can also see that in the history of rock and roll. You can see it in other styles of popular music. Other countries are neglected. Australia is neglected um, in these stories and, and many other uh, parts of the world that actually <clears throat> played a very significant role in developing and advancing these styles of popular music. Mm. Um, so it's kind of this American myopia yes. <laughs> that uh, Brian, uh, DJ Bo, is trying to uh, counter with his counter narrative about the origins of rock. Uh, but he cites it very, you know, it takes it kind of back to Shanghai and in, in, in China in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, but I'll let him tell his, okay. the, the specifics of the story. Uh, it actually sounds kind of convincing when he tells it. Right. Yeah. And it was interesting uh, what I read in your book is that Wham was the first international band, rock band or yeah. rock band <laughs> to come to China. Why did it take so long? Was it, again, was it because of just the like the political? So this was in the 1980s when China was just starting to open up to mm. the world. The, uh, the the reform era under Deng Xiaoping. Yeah, Wham was definitely the first like Western rock slash pop band to come to China and perform on a public stage. They played in the Beijing Workers Stadium in 1985. Um, and I think that was all organized by, was it Simon Napier Bell was the, the manager of the group or he was, right. he was organizing their tour. It was quite brilliant, I think, to, for them to come to China at that time because no other band had conceived of doing that I mm. think, in, in that time period. Um, and they had a huge reception here. I know that they influenced a lot of the first generation of Chinese rockers like yes. Tui Jian, I think, was was influenced by that concert hmm. you know they'd never seen like rock stars performing on us on a stage like that what a huge like a first time yeah to go to the concert to get that energy the i mean back then because china had been so closed off to the western world for an entire generation under the mao years you know and and during the cultural revolution um all of this uh, western culture had been slammed for being decadent, for being bourgeois. So anybody who came to China, any artist who came to China in the 1980s could have a profound impact on Chinese culture and society just be, because they were the first mm. to arrive. Um, and, and, and if they had a significant interaction with Chinese artists and musicians, they could have very significant impact um, so I think we can't underestimate the impact that the Wham! concert had on kind of the origins of rock music in China. But that said, I, I mean, I feel like maybe I overstate the case of foreigners having this big influence because I think Chinese musicians who were coming from Taiwan and Hong Kong and other places also had a profound influence on Chinese rock and roll in, in mainland China because you already had a pretty big rock and roll movement in Hong Kong and Taiwan, you know, since the 1960s. And there were Chinese rock stars from from Hong Kong and Taiwan who were coming to China to perform. 
and certainly their their music was circulating in China. Mm. Um, so, you know, I I think that's also a big part of the story as well. Yeah. So the book starts. You go to this bar, Yugong Yishan, yeah, yeah. and there's two bands: a cover band, ACDC, come on, and Spring and Autumn. Yeah, but it's featured. Spring and Autumn are featured a lot in the book. So yeah, this is this is where it all starts. This is where they get the juices flowing. Like that was the definitely the spark for my uh, project because, you know, this was completely out of the blue. I I um, I had a colleague in town, an American colleague, a, a, another sinologist, who um, whose son, I guess he was he was there in China in Beijing um, on a research stint, and his son was going to an international school, and his son's teacher, a guy named Jamie Welton, was uh, was performing that night. Um, so we all had dinner together, and then his son, who was like a teenager, also learning blues guitar right. from Jamie, I think. Um, he insisted on kind of dragging us to this to this club right. to see his teacher perform. And it turns out that Jamie was the lead singer for the ACDC cover band, Dirty Deeds. <laughs> and a very interesting character in, in the Beijing music scenes. So uh, we saw Dirty Deeds, but before they performed, uh, this band called Spring and Autumn, Twin Chiu played, and they were an all Chinese band. Although Kaiser Kaiser Guo um, is American Chinese, but um, he and uh, I think there was a five member band were performing, and they're kind of a metal based band, but with a lot of Chinese inflection mm. to them. So it's a really it was a great band. Mm. Um, and I was just so floored by that band and how good they were and how much fun it was to be in this little underground rock club in Beijing. And then when the Dirty Deeds band came on, of course, you know, we know all those songs, yeah. the ACDC songs. The crowd shifted. It became a lot more foreigners. It was later in the night. People were getting a bit drunk and they were just dancing their asses off to this ACDC cover band yes and i thought wow this scene has so much energy it's just so interesting to see this happening in the middle of beijing i never knew this existed when i come back next year i'm gonna you know put a lot of time and attention to uh to documenting this scene so that's what i decided to do there you go yeah. and then you obviously are finding more bands you said the godfathers of that era tens dynasty yeah and Black Panthers. Yeah. Tell us about them for people who don't recognize those names. Yeah, Tang Dynasty, Tang Chao, and uh, Black Panther, Hei Bao. They, th those are two rock bands that came out of China in the late 1980s. So I think after Cui Jian emerged, Cui Jian and his band kind of emerged in, in that time period. And then there was a whole like uh, whole group of pioneer uh, mainland Chinese rock bands that came out of Beijing in the late 1980s. So um, Tang Dynasty was one of them. Black Panther was another. There was an all-women's band called Cobra mm. that also came out of that era. And they were all taking on kind of eclectic influences. Like they were influenced by a lot of the 80s hair metal bands. Come on. And they, the, um, 
you know, from Bon Jovi mm -hmm. to, but they, they, you know, they also had uh, other influences, the police, oh. um, you, you know, it was kind of an eclectic set of influences that created these melodic sort of Chinese hair metal bands. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, and they were also incorporating a lot of Chinese elements into their, into their music, especially into the lyrics. Right. Um, to kind of, you know, reinforce Chinese culture. And, and maybe it was kind of an argument that, hey, rock and roll is just as Chinese as anything else. Yeah. You know, I think from the very early days, the Chinese kind of owned rock and roll. They said, this is our music too. Mm. It has roots in Chinese culture. You can kind of hear that in traditional Chinese folk music, like especially Northwest folk music. If you listen to a, a guy like, playing on a three string, you know, instrument playing some northwestern folk music. It sounds kind of rock and roll. Yes. So I think there was some uh there's definitely some uh depth to that argument that that rock and roll has Chinese roots as well. Yeah. Um it's kind of a universal music in mm. that sense. Um so all these bands were emerging in the late 80s. Then after, you know, the protest movement in 1989 kind of Put a damper on rock and roll because rock and roll had been part of that part protest of movement and mm. was kind of suppressed, um, certainly in the media. Uh, but they continued to perform. And I think, you know, what made these bands popular in China and Asia was that they, they were also very nationalistic. Like Tang Dynasty had a lot of songs that sort of elevated the Chinese nation. You know, yeah. the name itself, Tang Dynasty, suggests the golden age when China was at the center of the known universe. Right, right. So I think there was a lot of, you know, widespread acceptance of these bands and their message. Mm. But then what happened was, um, I think there was a rebellion against these hair metal bands <laughs> in the 90s. You know, there was the punk rebellion. Oh, uh, yes. Grunge punk. Yeah, kind of grungy. There was... Uh, Nirvana became a huge influence to this underground punk scene in Beijing. And this idea that you don't have to be a virtuoso. Yeah, you don't have to play player. 15 guitar solos. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it was kind of similar to the punk revolution in America and in the UK, probably in Australia as well mm. in the 1970s, that uh, this glamorous rock scene with long haired rockers had gotten too bloated, too self important. And yes. You know, you had the Sex Pistols and the Clash come out with their hair cropped short and really tight, really aggressive, very simple music. Um, and that kind of happened in Beijing in the, in the 90s as well. Um, so then the metal scene kind of separated from the punk scene and they became two tribes, two camps. Yes. And I remember having a conversation with Kaiser Guo about this. Kaiser Guo, who was one of the founders of Tang Dynasty in the 80s and then went on to uh, um, co-found this band Spring and Autumn. Right. He and I had this conversation about these scenes and, and he was talking about what, how he went out to Yunnan for a festival and uh, you had the metal bands in one bus and the punk bands in another bus. <laughs> <laughs> and they would they got to the festival which was in the mountains and they kind of surveyed each other each tribe looking over at the other tribe and you know the metal the metal bands all had long hair and they ha they all had black leather but unadorned <laughs> and the punk bands all had like short cropped hair yes 
with with black leather but with pins and buttons and all sorts of adornments on them they rebel against the metal yeah <laughs> but they kind of looked at each other you know at each other kind of grudgingly like nodded and kind of accepted each other's existence and, <laughs> you know. maybe because they have to <laughs> yeah but it's it's i don't know if it happens now maybe they're more accepting but yeah even in australia if a metal band come on at a festival get out of the road the metal guys are coming through and a pop band grunge band just just yeah. each different crowd are just okay your turn yeah i mean i think that i think the metal bands kind of inherit this sort of guitar hero mentality right that yes that uh all these intricate solos and really fast guitar work are are such a you know fundamental part of metal music whereas with the punk scene it was kind of the it's fast guitar work but it's fast chord attitude play. yeah it's not attitude and aggression yeah. yeah and uh and kind of making noise with the instrument rather yeah. than something that's melodic with a lot of scales and a lot yes of, you know so metallica which you said is one of your favorite bands mm. i mean definitely exemplifies that sort of uh, it's it's uh, it's aggressive, loud, but it's very melodic. Yes. Very scale focused. Very very disciplined kind of music. Um, so that rift kind of developed in the '90s in China, and it's ha it has existed ever since. It's still very much a part of the Chinese rock scene. Oh today. yes. And some of the bands that you also mentioned in the book as well: Hedgehog, PK14, Carsick Cars. Tell us about some of these bands. Yeah, those were all bands that were really starting to emerge when I started filming in, in the late 2000s. Hmm. Um, they were all very young. I think the average age of those bands was like 21. Right. <laughs> no, that's not true. There were some older veterans of the scene who were kind of mixed in with the younger guys. Yeah. So Carsick Cars uh, was fronted by a guy named Zhang Shou Wang, who was... Uh, know very young at that time he must have been 20 or 21 and uh they had one of their big influences was the band sonic youth mm. so they had this very like a very rhythmic aggressive very fast guitar style and he was also experimenting with um yeah just experimental music i remember seeing like at, at least one time he was performing experimental music by using various objects and applying them to his the strings of his electric guitar to make different sounds <laughs> right. or noises uh, but in his in the concerts uh, he would he would apply a drumstick to to the guitar strings and and make them kind of scream in this yeah, eerie, right. almost like halloween way like a ghost was screaming in the night um, how original it was very eerie it was very dark and but they also had some uh, some tight and kind of you know very uh, catchy songs like Jungnan Hai was their favorite song um, was the crowd favorite Jungnan Hai is the name of a cigarette brand but also happens to be the headquarters of the Communist Party in Beijing <laughs> so kind of a double, meaning, double entendre um, but that song was very is very uh, catchy. Uh, very simple. Um, so they had so that band was emerging um, with its kind of aggressive, noisy guitar style. 
which became kind of emblematic of the Beijing scene. And then Hedgehog was kind of similar. They had they 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 had some like tight pop sounding music, but also very aggressive. A lot of noise on the guitar, a lot of experimentation. Um, Hedgehog, <coughs> actually, both Carsick Cars and Hedgehog had female drummers. Yeah, right. Who were both, um, you know, amongst the top drummers in the Beijing indie mm. rock scene. Uh, so with Hedgehog, it was uh, this very tiny girl named Adam, but she was an amazing drummer. But she also sang backup vocals with the lead vocalist. Mm. So they would like do a little call and response or do harmonies while she was on drums, which made the band even more interesting. Right. Um, so those were two great bands. PK-14 was more of a veteran of the scene. They, uh, the lead singer, Yang Haisong, comes from Nanjing. And uh, he's very intellectual. He's a poet. He's an artist. Later, he became a producer. He's produced dozens of, al- of indie rock albums for their label, Maybe Mars, which was right. started at that time in 2007. Yeah, he, he's definitely one of the most, I would argue, one of the most influential musicians in in the indie rock scene yeah, over right. the past 20 years wow um, i think the band pk14 disbanded though um, but they were a very tight uh rock and roll band back in those days and they and their drummer was a swedish guy whose name i can't pronounce it's too complicated but <laughs> it's one of the things that i really like about the shanghai music scene now i've only been in it for a couple of years but yeah We've had COVID, we've had the lockdowns, but still the the Shanghai rock scene still comes up, goes down, people leave, yeah. and then all of a sudden there's all these new bands. It never dies. It's always got these people, hey, you play guitar, I play drums. Hey, let's form a band. Yeah. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah, I think that one thing that distinguishes the Shanghai rock scene is the... Uh, presence of foreigners because mm. you know there's just more foreigners living in shanghai than any other city in china right. <clears throat> even though there were a lot of foreigners in beijing i didn't see a huge presence of foreigners in the chinese indie rock scene it was almost all chinese bands and musicians but in uh, in shanghai there's a lot of prominent rock bands that are composed at least partly of foreigners uh, and there seems to be a lot of cooperation between foreigners and Chinese musicians to start up bands. And, you know, some of the most famous, uh, well-known bands in the Shanghai scene are at least partly composed of foreigners. Mm. So it is a different, uh, it, it does give it a different feel, I think, than the Beijing rock scene in its heyday. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the Shanghai rock scene has persisted and I have a whole chapter devoted to that Come on. in my book, which kind of traces the clubs and the, and some of the bands that have been prominent in the scene. Um, but I feel like I only scratched the surface of that scene in my book. So don't go looking to my book for like getting a full picture <laughs> of the Shanghai rock scene. That book has yet to be written. Right. We have both connections to the Cotton Club. It's come up a few times now in my podcast. What can you tell us about the Cotton Club? Yeah, the Cotton Club the Club has started in the late 1990s with a blues and jazz emphasis. Mm. It, was, uh, it was started, the first musician who became a fixture of that club was Matt Harding, an American from Utah, who's a uh, guitarist and a singer uh, and a songwriter. Um, and he 
kind of became the musical director of the club when it started up in the late 90s. Um, it, it actually had an earlier phase where there were a lot of rock bands playing, a lot of local Chinese and foreigners playing eclectic music. But I think when Matt took over in the late 90s, it became more of a blues and jazz, mm, jazz club. Right. And then he brought his friend Greg Smith, who was also from Utah, two, right. two Mormon, strapping Mormon boys. <laughs> so Greg... Uh, came. He's a superb guitarist. Still on the scene. Still on the scene today. So <laughs> Matt left. Matt left China, but Greg stayed and he took over the musical directorship and he directed the Cotton Club stage for the next 19 years. Mm. So it closed down in 2017, but during its almost 20 year run under Greg's leadership, they both hosted but also nurtured some of the best jazz and blues musicians in the city. Yes. Um, a lot of Chinese musicians from the nearby Shanghai Conservatory came to the Cotton Club. They learned, they kind of learned their chops playing every night at the Cotton Club, whether they were singers like Coco, Coco Zhao yes. was one of them, who's now quite famous, certainly from the Shanghai scene as a singer. Their, their horn players uh, were also from the Chinese Conservatory there was a violin player named Peng Fei who also became a fixture of that scene and and others as well. And so the, it was, you know, they they had their house band, which consisted of Greg Smith on guitar, a guy named Francesco on drums, a Jorland, Filipino bass player. Those that those were like the three pillars right. of, of the Cotton Club. And then they would invite uh, other musicians to perform as regulars or to perform maybe once a week. There were other singers, many, many singers who came and went over the years and saxophone players and just trumpet players and just all kinds of people who played regularly at the Cotton Club over that time period. Well, I've had Frank Bray on. He talked about it. Yeah. Dave Stone talked about it. Yeah, there's been quite a few people that, are, that absolutely love and talk High, very highly of the Cotton Club, and this is the this is the issue with the Shanghai, with Shanghai night scenes. Often, like a, a neighborhood will grow and end up thriving as a nightlife scene with live music, with bars and clubs, and then the government decides that for some reason or other that they want to shut it down. So, just quickly on you personally, yeah. how did it affect you? Because I, I loved reading your blog blogs on your <laughs> website yeah very informative uh so just a little bit of background on, on your experience with the covid situation here in china well i you know i i experienced it as everybody else did mm. the, the ebb and flow of the the lockdowns and i write in great detail in my blog about uh about some of my experiences during the Shanghai lockdown last year, I was actually stuck in Kunshan. Hmm. I was living in a, I was renting a house on a lakeside on the biggest lake in Kunshan, Dianshan Lake. And so while everybody in Shanghai was suffering, not able to leave their apartment, not able to walk their dog outside, I was enjoying long walks with my dog in the, in the countryside or along the lakeside or even in our, even when we were res restricted to our own community during the height of the lockdown, like I was never, I was never restricted to my house. Um, they just couldn't, 
you know, there was no reason for that kind of policy there. I had a luxury lifestyle compared to the people right. who were suffering in Shanghai. And people really did suffer. I mean, obviously, I was connected to all of my friends and my family. My wife and daughters were stuck in our apartment in Shanghai. And there was a lot of suffering and there was a lot of uncertainty uh, because of the way the lockdown unfolded. It was just never certain when it would lift. Um, food became scarce. It was really a, a nightmare for so many people. And just imagine your dog not being able to go outside for yeah. two months. Um, it was just terrible times. <laughs> and speaking of that, and something that yeah. I was very impressed with, yeah. some of your artwork, yeah. and you did that over COVID. I Amazing. Kind of I rediscovered art. Yeah. Uh, it was just a way of coping with the loneliness and the isolation, I guess. So I, I started doing watercolor painting mm. and started getting kind of, you know, learning more about the art of watercolor painting. So I'm still very much at the beginner stage, but I'm hoping to continue my my practice. Well, I think you should. <laughs> You're a very talented man. That's uh, uh, it's very very good. And let's go back now. Born in the U.S. Whereabouts were you born and raised? I grew up in Massachusetts, mm. which uh, you know is uh, is known as a uh, educational state. You know, you have Boston with Harvard and MIT and all these great colleges and universities. Massachusetts and Boston have a long history of being cultural centers and uh, um, centers of historical importance. I grew up in a town called Acton, which is right next to Concord, which is the definitely the most well-known town in Massachusetts, probably one of the most well-known towns in America right. because of its, uh, you know, it had uh, such a rich uh, cultural history and you had uh, Henry David Thoreau living next to um, Ralph Waldo Emerson and down the street <laughs> right. Louisa May Alcott. And so... To this day, it's just it's a, a town that's incredibly resonant of history. It's where the first great, uh, the, the spark of the Revolutionary War uh, at the Old North Bridge in Concord, mm. um, the Minutemen versus the Redcoats. I used to, I used to go on these marches of the Minutemen from oh, yeah, Acton right. to Concord, you know, to yeah, right. commemorate this battle, yeah. uh, which was this battle between the British Redcoats and these basically Amer um, proto-American farmers. So I think I was steeped in history from an early age, and I just became fascinated by history growing up, uh, taking courses in American history in high school, and then uh, world history. I wrote a paper on Genghis Khan when I was in high right. school. Yes. So I think I had this you know, fascination with world history as well, which eventually led me to China. Let's go back even further. Uh, where did music come into all that? I've always been, uh, yeah, music has always been a constant thread in my life. Um, <coughs> when were your I was, parents musicians? Yeah, actually, they they were. I mean, amateur musicians. My mother plays piano quite well, and mm. she was trained in classical piano and can sight read. And so she gave us piano lessons, or she, you know, um, had us take piano lessons, me and my sister, when I was a kid. And, and at first it didn't really stick, but then as a teenager, I started to really get interested in learning piano. And I mm. was taking lessons at the Acton Music Center right. with uh, musicians from like Berklee College in Boston. Great, great teachers. Uh, was learning classical piano and a little bit of jazz piano. Uh, but I also took guitar lessons there as well. 
but it wasn't until graduate school that I really started learning guitar. So it was so at first I was a piano player through high school. And then in college, I continued to, to study classical piano. Mm. Um, I also uh, uh, joined a choral group called the Chamber Singers, which was nice. uh, the elite choral group on our campus of Dartmouth College. Yes. And we were uh, singing madrigals. We were singing songs from the Renaissance period of Europe oh, wow. in multiple languages, German, wow. French, Spanish, Russian. We, we were doing more modern songs, but... So I, I, I got a lot of great uh, training in singing through that experience mm. and also was steeped in this uh, in traditional music. And I kind of forgot about my interest in jazz. It's funny. I kind of through uh, college, I kind of steeped myself in classical music. It was like, oh, I'm a college student now. I, I really need to learn this classical music. So I was listening to Chopin and Beethoven and Brahms and trying to play some of their music on piano and singing it with the chamber singers. Then in graduate school, I started to play guitar. Um, but going back to your question about music, like I, th I think my first earliest influence, a musical influence was the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Close. Like when I was uh, four or five years old, I think I got the Yellow Submarine album. Oh, come on. I played it until the grooves wore <laughs> down, right? So I know like every single little tiny bit of that album, including all the orchestrated oh, there you instrumental go. Wow. parts. Um, I think that's a very underestimated album in the Beatles canon. Agreed. It's influence on young people. And then I graduated to Sgt. Pepper's from there. Oh, yes. And then from there, I went straight to Abbey Road. Oh. It's kind of funny. Like I, I started with the later Beatles, and then when I was uh, a little bit older, I got into the early Beatles. Started listening to their earliest stuff. Yes. Um, and then somewhere in between, I, I, you know, Revolver and and uh, and Rubber Soul. So by the time I was probably 12 years old, I think I had 20 Beatles albums right. in my collection, which I still have today. Oh, come on. And, I, uh, and mm. I also, and I just knew every Beatles song, right, left, backwards, forwards. Um, so they were definitely my earliest musical influence. So Andrew, have you seen the Shanghai Beatles? No. I I recommend you go and see them. Probably. I will definitely go see them. And they're actually yeah. They're called the Shanghai Beatles, but they're actually Japanese. So go figure. Oh. Yes. So they're a four. And they got all the instruments. They look as oh, much as they go see them. Abbey Road. Abbey Road Bar. They play at Abbey Road Bar. That yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I would love to see that band. I guess uh, in high school. I discovered new wave and punk rock and all these kind of movements that were coming out of, especially out of the UK. I was big into uh, the new wave bands, but also American bands like REM, early REM. Right. Um, were you forming bands at that stage or still just playing in your college? I, in high school, I was never in a band, I, although I did, per, I did play a little bit with some other musicians, but... Uh, I was trying to get um, to get good on the keyboard, and eventually bought myself a synth like an early Roland Juno synthesizer. Yeah. Yeah. So in in grad school, I rediscovered guitar, and I just I uh, you know I saw 
I saw one of these, I, I was playing piano, playing classical piano, but I saw one of these ads, like a, a little flyer with, you know, little strips where you could, where you could take off the strip with a phone number on it. And it was like this guitar teacher who lived in the neighborhood where I was living in Upper West Side, New York. And so I called him and uh, he's like, yeah, come on over. The guy's name was Martin. He just turned out to be one of the best music teachers I've ever had because mm. he just he just said, okay, here's the basics that you got to learn. But he was also giving me bits of wisdom about how to learn guitar, but also about music. And uh, so I took, uh, took a whole set of lessons with him and he encouraged me to buy a Yamaha steel string guitar. And oh, nice. Yeah, it was a great guitar. I had it for like 20 years. Yeah, so I just started picking up the rudiments of guitar, the chords, a little bit of blues scale, um, and then just gradually kind of continued to learn by myself. I went back and uh, to the Acton Music Center a little bit later on and took uh, classical guitar, uh, basic classical guitar Now lessons. you're talking. Yeah. That's very difficult. <laughs> so to this day, I, I play some classical guitar, right. but... Uh, but still my skills, uh, yeah, just, if you don't do it every day. That's um, right. So, but mostly what I do is um, strum along to, song, to pop songs. So obviously the Beatles, you know, continue to be a big influence in my musical choices. So I, I, I can probably play a few dozen Beatles songs on either guitar or piano. Um, but I, you know, I kind of just developed my own repertoire of songs. A lot of songs from the '60s and '70s. I can do a lot of Dylan songs. Oh, yeah. Um, and and then other bands that I took a liking to, like REM and uh, some of the classic bands. Not much, not much stuff beyond the 1990s. All right, <laughs> that's that's all right. It's a good era. <laughs> yeah, and. Then tell us, when did you start thinking about China? What, because of your background in history, uh, like your knowledge yeah. for history, uh, obviously China's got a great history, but when did you start to think about, hey, let's move there? It's interesting. Uh, the, um, a lot of my tastes in, uh, and interests, both in reading and in music, come from my parents. Just the fact that my parents had books lying around, like in our in our library at home or they had record albums that I got curious about and put on and all of a sudden like, Ooh, what's this band? The Moody Blues. Right. That's pretty cool. And, and eventually a lot of this stuff became kind of part of my canon. I was studying Chinese language at Dartmouth and I just uh, fell in love with the language. That was the first thing that happened. Uh, had a great teacher, professor Susan Blader. Um, and I just became so obsessed with learning the characters and learning just the, how, the basic language, the tones and everything. And, and then from there, you graduate to learning poetry. You start learning about Chinese culture. And I think I had tofu for the first time. In All right. Life. Yes. You Not know. the stinky tofu. Not stinky tofu. No, okay. I remember going to a Chinese restaurant with my classmates as a cultural event. Yes. And I hadn't really, you know, I hadn't grown up in a very multicultural environment in Acton, Massachusetts. Right. Although my parents did their best. Yeah. But uh, 
It was probably like the first genuine Chinese restaurant that I'd been to. Back then, there weren't a lot of Chinese people in our community. Uh, later on, Acton became, um, had a very large and influential Chinese community. Hmm. But in, in when I was growing up, it was very small. So there wasn't a lot of Chinese influence in my in, in the place where I grew up. Um, so that's that's why I found myself eating tofu for the first time and just like, <laughs> whoa, this is pretty cool. And and oh, these vegetables, they're they're fresh, crispy, tasty. Um, wow, this is I, I haven't had food like this before. So so I kind of fell in love with the food. And and then I went to um, Taiwan that summer and it was just like, oh, my is the first my first time living and studying abroad. And that was a life-changing experience. Uh, Taipei, uh, Taipei was, uh, you know, it was, it was becoming a more modern city at the time, yes. but it was still steeped in traditional Chinese culture. Right. Every neighborhood you went to, there were shrines and there was incense wafting. Yes. And, um, and there were local traditions. Um, so that was really life-changing. But then what, what was really, truly life-changing was I decided to stay, not go back to college that year. I basically took the whole year off, almost the whole year. I decided to stay, stayed in Taiwan to continue to learn to practice Chinese. Um, and then I went traveling in mainland China for three months. Wow. I was traveling all over China went to Shanghai, Beijing, went to Western China, out to Chongqing. I took a, oh, yes. a boat on the Yangtze River. Oh, wow. I traveled by train, plane, bus, boat, whatever would take me places. And uh, and that, that to me was the most important experience that I had in my college years. Um, and, it, and it really, you know, China was a very different place back then. But I feel very fortunate that I had the chance to see it Yes. Um, in the 1980s before it underwent such radical transformations. Uh, that would have been amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that kind of led me to China. I mean, you know, at first, uh, I, I don't think I conceived like living in China long term back then. But then when I came back in the 1990s as a graduate student to do research, it became more conceivable to actually live in China because yes. there was a lot more, you know, you could say yeah, cities like Beijing and Shanghai were getting more westernized in some mm. ways. It was easier as a westerner to live there. Uh, but at the same time, it was just such a fascinating place to be. Um, but I, I, you know, but what really uh, uh, changed my life and, and uh, anchored me to China was, was uh, meeting my wife who's Shanghainese oh. and then we got married. And, uh, and even then I wasn't thinking, well, I'll probably spend most of the rest of my life in China. Um, we, uh, we ended up spending a year in the U S soon after that. And then we moved to Australia. Oh, uh, really? We, we were in go. Sydney Oh, for my first long-term teaching gig at university of new South Wales. Oh. So we ended up spending five years in Sydney. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, I look back, I, I still think like... So, the, so Sorry, Andrew, yeah. we've spent over an hour talking. <laughs> you, you tell me now that you, you've lived in Australia for five years. Yeah. 
I, I do think that we'll look back on those years as some of the best years of our lives. Mm. Uh, Sydney, such a wonderful city with the harbor, the hundred beaches. Yes. Wine. I'm from Newcastle, so it's just okay. not just north of Sydney. Yeah. So we have the vineyards on the west and the beaches in the east. It's amazing. Yeah, we, we had a great uh, experience there. But I think um, when we had our first daughter who was born in Australia, so she's technically an Australian citizen. Right. Um, and I almost became an Australian citizen. I was this close to be being an Australian citizen. Oh, there you go. By the end of the five years, I, I think I, all I needed was a police report from China or something. It was oh, yes. one thing that I had to tick off. But then something uh, happened, which was I got uh, – job offer from my old alma mater dartmouth college to direct their beijing program they have a study abroad program in beijing mm. and so i took uh i took six months off from my gig at uh, new south wales and i went to beijing that's when i did my filming of the rock scene got it and that again was a life-changing experience because it was just it was so much going on in china at that time and and then my wife got a job in Shanghai. <laughs> so, uh, she works in the TV industry hmm. um, as a presenter. So it just kind of made sense. We had a daughter that we were raising at that time. And it just kind of made sense for us to move back to China so that her parents could help take care of our daughter. The daughter hmm. could grow up in a, in a Chinese cultural environment. Um, and so that's what we did. We ended up leaving Sydney. It was a, it was not an easy decision to make. And there are times when I regret it in the middle of a Shanghai winter <laughs> when I think about the glistening, the yes. uh, you know sunlight dappling on the uh, on the waters of Kuji Beach. Yes. But you know, for the most part, I I I think it was the right decision to make yes. because um, it gave our daughters because we had a second daughter soon after that, and it gave our daughters the opportunity to grow up in a in a Chinese cultural environment, to really know their Chinese family, yes. Chinese grandparents. And and my wife had a second opportunity at her career. And now you've been here for so long. Yeah. You started like a, is it a pet project or is it a second job? A walking tour of all the historical places here in Shanghai. I think this yeah. is amazing. You've got a tour of the French concession area. Now... I was filling out a form when I first come here and I wrote that I lived in Shifei French Concession. Yeah. And that came up saying, no, you cannot say that anymore. Right. You must say <laughs> it's not the French Concession. So and with yeah. your research, tell us about your walks that you do. Yeah, now, nowadays it's kosher to say that it's the former French Concession, the FFC. Former, okay. Yeah. So if you add the former, then everybody's cool. Okay. It, you know, China still has some uh, uh, sensitivities about the colonial period. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah. So I, over the years, I developed a set of walking tours that would uh, explore the history of the city, tell stories about different periods in the city's history, and try to knit them together into kind of a coherent narrative. So I think that's the challenge, because it's pretty easy to give neighborhood tours in Shanghai where you're like, oh, and this building was this, and this building, you know, from 1924, and, and, yeah, and, and a lot of people were doing that. But what I, what I was trying to do was to um, 
find clever ways of putting pulling together the individual stories of neighborhoods into a more a lot larger narrative mm. which i don't think that most tour guides can do so you have to know a lot about the history of of the city of the country what china was going through as well as all the famous people who lived in various neighborhoods and then you can kind of so the French concession tour is definitely my piece de resistance amongst all of my <laughs> tours of Shanghai because yes. I go into the heart of the French of the former French concession, and I tell stories of the great writers and artists and revolutionaries who lived there, and I pull them all together into a grand narrative of China in the twenties and thirties. It's amazing. How do we get to go on these tours? Oh, just contact me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Social yeah. media, like WeChat. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have an official way to. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, if you contact me through email or social media or whatever, I can. We can arrange something. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. And you've got the three, right? The French concession. Two other walks that I developed. One was a, a walk on the Shanghai Bund. Bund, right? Yeah. Okay. So looking at the uh, landmark hotels and buildings of the Bund. Um, and then another one was the is the center of the former international settlement around the what's now the People's Park and People's Square, but what used to be the recreation ground. Right. So where a lot of uh, a lot of international and Chinese hotels and clubs and theaters were located. So I call it the theater district of Shanghai. Mm. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Well, I'll just be specific to, um, you know, because as a as a historian, as a scholar and a professor, our goal is to publish books. And uh, when I was in uh, UNSW in Sydney, I was struggling to get my first book published. It was my dissertation. Mm. And as anybody in academia knows, one of the hardest things to do is to publish your dissertation because you have to kind of transform it uh, to make it into a book. <clears throat> tried with a couple of university presses and they uh, and I got a couple of reviews back that that suggested major revisions were were needed mm. and uh, I was trying to work on those and then I got kind of bogged down because I think once you get the the basic structure of your book down it's really hard to change that structure so then uh, one of my colleagues at UNSW in the School of History said don't listen to those reviewers. Just send it to another publisher. That's mm. the best advice I've ever been given. Yeah, right. Because I did that. And lo and behold, I got a favorable review that said just a few minor, you know, revisions necessary and yes. you can publish this book. So I think that uh, you should never take reviewers at face value. Mm. Always, always get a second opinion. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that is good advice. And... All right. So my first question, and it's super broad, but as of today, don't don't think too hard about it. Your two or three uh, top favorite bands are from China, like new bands. Um, well, let's say uh, let's say of all time. Then first, before I get into the all time, mm. uh, let me just give a shout out. I want to give a shout out to one of our student bands in uh, at duke quinshan it's a band called paper view yes which i first saw perform about three weeks ago on campus 
And I was so impressed by them that I said, you guys need to um, check out the Shanghai scene because there are places where you could perform. And so um, they did, and they, they immediately got a gig at C's Bar. Oh, come on. So I saw them perform last, last weekend at C's Bar, and they did a great job. So I think Pay-Per-View is a band that you have to watch out for Pay-per-view, in the Shanghai yeah. scene. In terms of bands on the Shanghai scene, I think one of, one of, the, one of my favorite bands, the veteran bands of the Shanghai scene, is Banana Monkey. Oh, yes. I've seen them many different times, and in different venues and they always put on a great act and um it's just a fun band it's a it's um kind of veteran veteran band in the shanghai scene um in terms of the in you know certainly my my personal favorite band from uh from documenting the indie rock scene of beijing is subs yes and subs is this super hardcore rock band fronted by this woman named kang mao and her partner Wu Hao, who's the gu- lead guitarist, and they've been the core of the band for 20 years now. I've seen them perform in so many different venues. They're described in great detail in the in the book. That's what I was going to say. We've gone yeah. an hour and a half, and we've only just yeah. talked about the subs now. <laughs> yeah, I, they're just one of my favorite bands to see performing because you never know what Kang Mao is going to be up to next, and she just puts all her heart into the performances. She's like just a template for how to give it your all in a in a vocal performance. Um, but the band keeps evolving and developing and and bringing in new sounds into their into their uh, music. Um, so that's a great. I think that's one of the, one of the great bands in China. Um, and then of course, Cui Jian. I think Cui Jian. Um, just continues to prove himself as China's most important rock and roll godfather. Last year, during the height of the lockdown in Shanghai, I mean, I'm not sure it was directly related to that, but he yeah. performed live from Beijing. Um, I think they were in Beijing. His band was broadcast on WeChat, oh, which come is on. the Chinese social media platform, Yes, and seen by millions of people all over the country. And... Man, that was such a special uh, event. Um, he's just continued to show to China that he he is the rock godfather that everybody calls him. So. Right. And uh, two or three of your favorite all-time movies or documentaries. Favorite all-time documentaries. Oh, God, that's a hard one because there's so many great documentaries. I'll just talk about music. As of today, I'll as talk of about today. music documentaries because okay. that's a very specific. And sure. I, I've watched a lot of music documentaries. One of the when I was doing uh, research for my own documentary on rock in China, uh, one of the most kind of um, inspirational movies that I watched was a movie called Dig, and it's about. Uh, I got that written down there. But yeah, oh, really? to ask okay. you about yeah yeah, it's a documentary which was a real labor on of. Love by the uh, filmmaker Ondi Timoner, and it's about uh, kind of a rivalry that developed between these two indie rock bands, the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Mm. And, and throughout the movie, you can see how they influenced each other, um, but also it's kind of also about the burdens of genius and the and sort of the the uh, 
fine line between genius and madness. Right. So you'd have to watch the movie to understand mm-hmm. that. But, uh, but I think that's one of the great rock documentaries. There's a, a movie uh, series that I watched very recently that I want to uh, give a shout out to, and that's about uh, Wayne Shorter. It's called Zero Gravity, and it just came out this year. Wayne Shorter just passed away. Uh, anybody who knows jazz knows he's a legend in in uh, jazz history. But this is a this is a movie that it's three part uh, documentary series about his life, about his philosophy, about uh, his career as a jazz musician, playing with some of the greatest jazz artists. And last last question. Who's your greatest inspiration slash hero and why? I mean, obviously my parents. I can't, you know. So let's, you know, let's just acknowledge that my parents have been uh, obviously the the most important people in my life, um, inspiring me, influencing me. But uh, if it's not uh, parents or... I'll name another relative because I think it's kind of cliche to talk about your parents, and that's just goes without saying um, when you have good parents. But my uh, my other greatest influence, I'd say, growing up um, was my uncle Richard Ellingbow, who uh, was a kind of a polymath. He was a linguist. He, like I said, he studied Japanese, but he was also a musician who played multiple instruments. He was an avid sportsman. He was a serious cyclist who would do centuries and double centuries. He was also a great inspiration. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Now I want to really dive into the history of uh, music here. You're giving me some inspiration now to, to do it. Thanks, Craig. I'm Bala from Bala Simple Chinese School. If you are a beginner, intermediate, advanced looking for HSK study, business Chinese, or simply want to improve your everyday communication, I'm the teacher for you. Come and join me for a free trail class at Balance Simple Chinese School. <laughs>